Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Stan Jastrzewski, the news director of WFIU. And today we're going to talk about uh, justice. It's our second uh, week of criminal justice programs. Last week we talked about juvenile justice. This week we're going to talk about overcrowding in jails and prisons in the state and alternative rehabilitation methods. Joining us in the studio is Dr. William Head of IU's Criminal Justice Department. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address. You can join the program there with your questions or comments. Stan, great to have you with us today. Good to be here. It's always good to have a professional journalist here, (laughs) professional broadcaster. And Bill, it's good to see you. Happy to be here. All right. Well, we've got – we talked about juvenile justice last week and – and uh, this week we're going to talk about uh, the overcrowding in jails and, and some other issues. Um, one of the things I wanted to start with is I went to the Dep- Indiana Department of Correction website and was uh, happy to see that they actually have a mission statement and a vision statement. And uh, I want to read them for our listeners. The Indiana Department of Correction advances public safety and successful reentry through dynamic supervision, programming, and partnerships. That's the mission statement. The vision statement is as the model of public safety, the Indiana Department of Correction returns productive citizens to our communities and supports a culture of inspiration, collaboration, and achievement. Now, you know, it's really easy to take these and sort of, you know, sort of mock them or make fun of them because I know that, you know, it's not 100 percent. But, you know, I I really don't want to do that. I want to give them the benefit (laughs) of that. I'm glad they have a mission mission statement and a vision statement. Uh, But I do want to ask you, uh, Bill, if – uh, you know how close are they in your you know in your estimation from your vantage point? How right. close are they to be able to claim successful reentry through dynamic supervision as as their mission? Well, there's always going to be a sort of a disparity between the theory and the practice uh, for any organization, as you said. But um, in Indiana, ironically, is one of the few states that actually talks about rehabilitation in the Constitution. I mean, there's a, a clause in the Indiana Constitution that talks about uh, the purpose of corrections of prisons is to rehabilitate offenders. So at least, you know, we've been thinking about it for the last hundred years or so. The problem is, how does that get put into into practice? And uh, a lot of it, you know, varies depending on what kinds of offenders you're talking about, what kinds of um, offenses you're talking about, whether you're talking about state prisons or local prisons, I think, or, or, or local jails. I think state prisons probably do a better job than the local jails because the local jails are primarily designed to warehouse offenders. There's no real pretense that you know that any rehabilitation is being done or treatment. Um, in fact. Uh, in recent years, one of the biggest uh, cost increases for for local jails is when the courts stepped in and mandated that they provide health care, uh, which really hadn't been done much uh, uh, in the past. And now you've got jails uh, that are required to provide dental care and uh, and medical care um, to their uh, to the to their um, offenders. Uh, at the state level, there are programs in place, educational programs, vocational programs. Uh, that allow the offender um, to learn a skill or to uh, to better themselves through education. Um, the the question becomes, you know, you can sort of lead a horse to water, but can you make them drink? Uh, the federal level, uh, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, I guess, um, they actually required uh, offenders to get a high school uh, diploma, to get a GED while they were in federal custody, uh, and they couldn't be released until they'd fulfilled that. And it proved to be a, a very, uh, very unsuccessful program because a lot of the offenders just couldn't do it. They just didn't have the, uh, the intellect to be able to even uh, complete, uh, you know, the high school degree. And so they had to sort of abandon that and make it sort of a, a carrot and a stick approach rather than a, a mandatory requirement. Mm-hmm. But at least this is actually a great way to start the program with good news. The state of Indiana recognizes and actually puts in the Constitution and in the mission statement and in the vision statement that rehabilitation is what they want to do uh, with their prison system, which is, as you said, not not always that 
common. So, right. That's yeah. true. Um, there are obstacles in the way of that, however. Uh, back during the Depression, um, a number of people were, were pretty outraged that uh, offenders behind bars were making products and, and sort of prison industry that was competing with the free world. So Congress actually passed a law um, that said that um, – that prisons can't compete with free world industry, um, prohibited them from from making widgets or, or whatever it was that was made in the free world. And um, that's where the whole license plate thing came from. That's why, that's why prisons make license plates because the states get around that provision by – uh, they're, they're allowed to only make things that are going to be consumed by the state. So things that have to be used by the state um, uh, can be made in prisons. And so typically in most prisons, you find them making license plates. In New York State, they make all the office furniture. Here in Indiana, do you have any guess what uh, what the prison industry is in Indiana? Um, uh, no, I don't know. They make all the picnic tables for the state parks. Oh. And, uh, oh. and they actually uh, have a, a new sort of side <laughs> industry where they make you know the Adirondack chairs that you can put in your uh, in your backyard, and they now actually sell those at, at one, one of the prison stores. Um, but that creates a barrier because you're not really training people for jobs and skills that they're going to be able to find on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, some um, you know some professions uh, actually limit or even uh, completely ban offenders from um, you know from participating in their particular profession. Barbers, for example, you can't get a barber's license if you've got a felony conviction. Well, there's lots of bar- barbers programs and cosmopolitan cosmetology programs in prisons because they need to have their hair cut. And uh, and so uh, it's a very popular program inside the walls, but outside the walls, it's very hard to find employment doing those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And obviously, one way you look at how successful a prison program has been is the recidivism rate, reentry in some form into the criminal justice system. But we were talking off the air, and you said that the number that we have here from the state of Indiana of about 38 percent recidivism within three years may be manipulable in some way. Well, it, it's it's going to be based on their perception of what recidivism is, and, and different researchers can, uh, can phrase that or couch that in different ways. So, for example, uh, if I talk about reoffending, does that mean I committed the crime or that I was caught for committing the crime, that I was arrested for doing it, that I was actually convicted for doing that crime, or was I reincarcerated for doing that crime? I can, I can manipulate it that way, and I can manipulate it by the length of time. So are we talking about six months after I was released or two years after I was released or 10 years after I was released? I mean, if I want my recidivism statistics to be um, overwhelmingly positive, then I'll shorten the time frame and, you know, say things like recidivism only counts if you're convicted of the same crime that you were originally uh, charged with. So if I, was a, if I was a shoplifter or if I was an auto thief, if I'm reconvicted of being an auto thief, then that's a failure. But if I'm uh, convicted of burglary, then that wouldn't count as a failure, uh, depending on how I'm manipulating the recidivism rate. Do you know how Indiana defines it? Uh, typically, they do they do do reconviction uh, within I think three years uh, is is their standard and, of any crime of any crime any felony crime. All right, our phone number is eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. If you're outside the Bloomington calling area, and we have some prisons outside the Bloomington calling area, so <laughs> they will hear from some of those folks. Uh, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address. We're talking with Dr. William Head of IU's Criminal Justice Department. We're talking about the overcrowding in jails, alternative rehabilitation methods, and other issues involved with, with criminal justice. Um, I'm always interested in, you know, I've known you for quite a long time. You've taught uh, criminal justice for how many years? Yeah. Uh, since 1992 here okay. at IU. Okay, uh, since so. 1985 overall. Yeah, so, so quite, quite a while. <laughs> I just, I just wondered how. You know, what are you teaching today that you weren't teaching early on in your career? I mean, what are what are the changes you've seen in criminal justice that demand your time and spending that time with students on those? Topics? Well, um, somewhat depressingly, overcrowding <laughs> has always been an issue uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, the Walnut Street Jail opened in 1792 in Philadelphia. Within a year of its completion, it had an overcrowding problem. Uh, the Monroe County Jail here in Bloomington was opened in the 1980s. Uh, the designers, the architects said that it would handle all of our um, – 
uh, all of our correctional needs into the 21st century, within a year we had filled it to capacity. And so there's always going to be this tension between sort of the needs of a community and uh, what people perceive as being tough on crime. There's always going to be um, a push to show how tough we are on crime and what we can do about um, um, about the, the crime problem. Um, over the last 20 years, the thing that's been more and more of a paradox is that the crime rate's actually been going down uh, pretty dramatically uh, in the last 25 years or so, uh, depending on what crime you're talking about, violent crime, property crime, drug crime, those kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, the incarceration rate has been going up. Now, some people say, okay, that's your correlation. The crime rate's going down because the incarceration rate's going up. We've got more people locked up. Uh, but the reality is the more people we put in prison, uh, the more types of crimes that traditionally we wouldn't incarcerate people for have been used. So we've got more people behind bars for drug offenses, more people behind bars for public order offenses, those kinds of things, and fewer people, well, not necessarily fewer people, but a, a relatively stable population of violent offenders. So mm -hmm. in other words, we haven't had more violent offenders incarcerated. We've got basically the same number we've had and we've always had for the last 30 years, uh, but we've increased the population by uh, incarcerating people that traditionally we wouldn't wouldn't put behind bars. Does it? Uh, there is a cost to incarcerating every individual. Does it cost the same thing to incarcerate the, a drug offender as it might a violent criminal? It depends on uh, where you're incarcerating them. I mean, in most states, uh, there's a, a, a level of incarceration. In Indiana, we have minimum security camps. We've got medium security, maximum security. Obviously, the, the uh, more security you have, the, the higher the cost. So a maximum security or even a super maximum security, if you go to Carlisle, Indiana, uh, Wabash Valley, they have a super maximum security, which is a prison within the prison. So people in, in that segment uh, of the uh, facility are locked down 23 and a half hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's very expensive to do that, obviously. But so The statistics that we have, I think, averages out to $20,000 a year. Yeah, about, about 20000 is the uh, the figure that gets uh, bandied about. Um, that's probably a minimum. It's going to go up depending on if you have maximum security or super max, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It can go up to a much as 40000 Surprisingly, the older an inmate is, the more they cost. You'd think it would be the other way around, but then you get health care costs starting to factor in. And so uh, some states, including Indiana, have started looking at creating geriatric prisons uh, for wow. offenders, sort of a nursing home for offenders. Uh, and, um, you know, because the costs and, and the problems that are associated with that are, are so different from the general population. Interesting. All right. We have Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled that politicians who call for greater and greater punishment uh, when education and, and counseling are cheaper, uh, I, I don't understand why they aren't being attacked, for that matter, uh, by the free press. Could you comment on that? Well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to... Um, uh, short term versus long term. I mean, we know long term it makes much more sense to um, to um, have greater levels of education. If you look at, um, I was trying to look here uh, uh, nationwide. If you look at the total number of uh, of inmates, uh, about sixty percent haven't graduated from high school. Um, about forty percent, you know, have have uh, graduated from high school. So. Uh, obviously, there's a correlation between the people who are behind bars and, and the level of education. Now, some of that is driven by the fact that the criminal justice system is biased towards what are called street crimes. Uh, you don't see a whole lot of people uh, who are committing white-collar crime uh, being incarcerated. There's, there's usually alternatives for them or they're able to successfully plea bargain the, uh, the charge down so that they avoid prison time. Uh, so it's a little bit skewed by the kinds of crimes that people are, are behind bars for. Uh, but, yeah, clearly, you know, there's, there's this paradox and it, and it gets even wackier when the federal government 
eliminates Pell Grants for offenders. Uh, offenders are no longer eligible for Pell Grants, which means they're not allowed to work, and yet they're not allowed to get any money from the federal government to, uh, to better themselves and to get an education. And one of the biggest lobbying groups against the elimination of Pell Grants were correctional administrators, wardens and uh, and educational supervisors in prisons because they saw sort of the redeeming value of uh, offenders uh, getting a high school degree and getting college degrees while they were behind bars. Uh, Stan, I think uh, both my co-host Stan and I, are, we'd be classified as members of the free press probably. I'd say that we, uh, you know, as our, our newspaper editorial page has written several times about, you know, the need to provide rehabilitation uh, in prisons and in jails. And of course, we've supported a lot of things like, you know, the asset building coalition in town. We have a guest column come up by one of their people this weekend and, and things that, you know, can help set people on a right, the right path so they don't wind up in jail or prison. So I think, I think a lot of the free press does point these things out. But then you get into an election cycle and politics uh, can sort of skew the arguments. You know, if uh, most voters... If voters don't feel safe and secure, then people who are running for office are going to talk about, you know, being tough on crime. That's just sort of my my position. Yeah, nobody got reelected. Nobody ever got reelected in the United States by being perceived as being more friendly to offenders as opposed to less friendly to offenders. And, and a lot of times uh, in political races, it becomes sort of this arms race to to show who can be tougher on crime. And the problem is that. There's a difference between being tougher on crime and being smarter on crime. I mean, obviously, we know these things about what's effective and uh, and what isn't effective, and that warehousing really isn't going to to be a very effective long-term strategy. And yet, all it takes is for one offender to get out of prison and go go commit another crime, or uh, you know, to to be involved in a spectacular incident, and then the local justice system looks bad, the local politicians look bad. It's it's very. Uh, very bad PR. Right, yeah. right. Willie Horton. We had a, we had a case in Indiana. I don't know if you were here at the time, Stan, but uh, Matheny was the guy's name, right. and that was Evan Bayh's first year as governor, and yeah. uh, he basically shut down all right. the work releases, <laughs> eliminated all of the um, the the uh, community corrections programs uh, here in Bloomington. We had the Bloom or the uh, Bloomington uh, Correctional Facility, and uh, we actually had some offenders who were based here. It was you know sort of a work release program, and some offenders that actually went to IU and uh, were taking classes during the day, and then would return do the uh, secure setting at night, and every one of those programs was shut down as a result of one crime involving uh, a man who was released on furlough program and killed his wife in the front yard of his home, and uh, and all of the uh, parties involved didn't want to be perceived as being soft on crime and having that sort of thing happen again, and so they shut down the entire, uh, entire system. It's very sad. Yep. Stan, thanks for the call. Thank you. All right. We appreciate it. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I think that gets to an interesting point, which is the reaction to all of this. Of course, the governor and the uh, Supreme Court ju- Chief Justice both talked about it in their addresses to the state this year of the need for sentencing reform in the state of Indiana. How do you do something like that without an overreaction and, and how do you – how do you make sure that you're having you know, what might be called a measured response so that you're addressing exactly the problem you have but still being able to look forward uh, and avoid the problems that we've had in the jails, as you've said, which become overcrowded much more quickly than anybody thinks they will? Right. Um, well, it, it's encouraging when you start to see conservatives talking about doing something about uh, reducing prison populations. And, and usually uh, when that happens, it comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. And so I think the key to to making this more of a, a rationed, reasonable approach is to try and find some middle ground, to, to explain to people how expensive it is to keep somebody incarcerated for a year uh, or keep them in, in, in a more restrictive setting. Uh, probation is a good example here in Indiana. It costs about a, a tenth as much uh, to keep somebody on probation as it does to keep them behind bars, about $2,500 to keep somebody on probation. Um, and the recidivism rates, if you compare sort of apples to apples, the same crimes and the same uh, kinds of offenders, um, if you look at the recidivism rates for probationers as opposed to uh, 
um, inmates who get out, uh, it's about the same. Uh, they have about the same uh, same rate of recidivism. So if you're getting the same result and it's costing you a tenth uh, to keep somebody on probation, that would seem like the logical way to go. Uh, but again, all it takes is for one probationer to go out and commit another crime and everybody's screaming that you know we're being soft on crime or that we're not doing the right thing uh, to offenders, and we need to lock everybody up. If you if you if you read the Herald Times online, uh, there's no offender who should ever be released, and there's no offender who should ever get bail. I mean, everybody basically should uh, should be behind bars all of the time, and and that's a very hard. Uh, um, sort of sentiment, sort of a knee-jerk reaction to to counteract because mm-hmm. people honestly and deeply f- feel that you know we really need the best approach is to lock people up. Well, I think it comes down to uh, you know the the purpose of prisons and jails. Uh, is, as we talked earlier in the program, rehabilitation is a is in the Indiana Constitution, as you pointed out, uh, as part of the reason for the prison system. But there are a lot of people that think it's for you know, punishment. Right. And I, I guess for certain crimes, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a prison system based on punishment, then, yeah, you put people away and you – till they serve their last day of their sentence, you don't let them out for anything. Right. And, and, and the problem that – or, the, you know, sort of the, the social problems, the, the thing that's almost um, troubling to me is that we know from – from psychological studies that positive reinforcement is much more effective than negative reinforcement. And, uh, you know, the, the rat will get through the maze whether you shock him or give him food. But if you give him food, he's going to remember that for a lot, lot longer. And uh, the same thing applies to, uh, to offenders. I mean, if, if you're constantly reminding this offender by, you know, having a count every two hours that you can't be trusted and you can't make decisions for yourself – uh, and so you keep somebody locked up for 10 years and, and have given them no responsibility for their own lives whatsoever. You've told them what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, uh, what programs they're going to participate in. And then when they're released, we're surprised when they make bad choices. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of stunned that they go out and commit another crime when we really haven't done anything for them or to them uh, during that 10-year period that we had them locked up. Well, I think the other – another sort of telling um – position to take on this came last week when we had Judge Steve Galvin and uh, Mr. Glick from an, an Indianapolis organization uh, on juvenile justice, the state organization on juvenile justice, and they both were uh, in agreement. Steve Galvin certainly said, you know, we don't want these kids to go into the system because a lot of times once they get into the system, right. they just get hardened. They learn bad behaviors. So, you know, you, you can sort of take that position their position, and they see it every day. I'm sure not every juvenile judge, judge agrees with with Judge Galvin, but he sees it every day, and he's he's determined that if you can if you can keep these kids from going into the system through mentoring programs, through early intervention and rehabilitation, um, then you're going to have a lot less problem as they get older. Well, yeah, no question. And, and go ahead, Stan. I was just going to say that's interesting because you know one of the things you hear is that criminals will beget other criminals once you get them in the company of one another. I was wondering if you found that to be true regardless of someone's age. Well, uh, it's interesting because um, penitentiaries were actually seen as a reform. Uh, The Quakers invented penitentiaries back in the 1700s as a more humane way of dealing with offenders. And their philosophy in creating these things was – we need to isolate the offender, just sort of as you, as you say here. We need to isolate the offender from these evil influences. And so all of the, the original penitentiaries were built out in rural areas, completely isolated uh, um, you know, from, from society. You spend all your time in your cell sort of reflecting on the error of your ways. Um, and one of the things we found is that even if you do create the perfect person behind bars, you know, they, they're very remorseful and, uh, and they've learned the error of their ways. Once you reinsert them back into society, those kinds of lessons are lost very, very quickly. And so there was a, a big movement in the 1970s. Uh, to try and get more of a reintegration philosophy, try and take offenders and keep them in the community, have more of an emphasis on community corrections and probation and halfway houses and those kinds of things. Um, and it it was uh, fairly successful, but again, it was perceived as being soft on crime. And so 
um, we saw more and more of an increase, especially in the 1980s during the Reagan years, uh, on incarceration and building. We went on a building binge uh, in the 80s and uh, and built all these cells. And, and the sad thing is once you get a prison built, you'll fill it. Uh, it's not like schools where if you don't have enough kids, you just have to close it down. Um, once a prison is, is, is created, then society will find people to put in that prison. Do, you're, do you're prisons right. in Indiana get money the same way schools do, in other words, by population? Uh, no. They get money from the legislature. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a line item budget and uh, they decide uh, you know, how, how much to spend on that particular, um, you know, that particular enterprise. And California found itself in a position <laughs> – uh, 15 years ago where they were actually spending more money on incarceration than they were spending on higher education. They were putting more people behind bars and uh, and it became a very, very costly um, and expensive uh, proposition. I think we, we did the math earlier. I think 29,000 um, 29, prison population or jail population per day in the state of Indiana. Prison. Prison yeah. population. Uh, per day in the state of Indiana, and and at that twenty nineteen thousand dollar figure is what I multiplied out it was like five hundred and fifty one million dollars a year. The state's right. spending to keep right. people behind bars. Right. We've hit a time to take a, a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition with uh, Bob Zaltzberg and Stan Jastrzemski. Doctor William Head of IU's Criminal Justice Department is our guest today, and we're talking about criminal justice in the state of Indiana. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Stan Jastrzemski from WFIU. And our guest today is Dr. William Head of IU's Criminal Justice Department. We're talking about overcrowding in jails in the state of Indiana, alternative rehabilitation methods, and other criminal justice issues. If you have questions or comments, phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website if you want to go there and make a comment or ask a question. One of the things we haven't talked about much is the idea of deterrence. Uh, of course, in Indiana, with good behavior, your sentence uh, counts You know, one day, counts for two days served. And so you can get out in most cases in half the time of whatever you're actually sentenced to in a right. court. Is that an, an, a system that might need to be looked at in some ways? Is it better to keep people longer and, and you know, take that cost over the time to try to rehabilitate them over a longer period of time? Or is the two-for-one system something that's actually positive? Well, all states sort of struggle with that. I mean, it's, it's not actually designed to be a deterrent. It's designed to be a correctional management tool. Uh, uh, correctional administrators came up with good time as a way of rewarding offenders for being docile while they're behind bars. I mean, you can take somebody's good time away from them, then that's a pretty powerful incentive for them to do the right thing while they're incarcerated. But all states struggle with this. California... Um, uh, is currently at uh, at two for one. So uh, if you get a 12-year sentence in California, you're actually only going to have to do a third of that before you're eligible for release. Uh, Texas really got into hot water because uh, about 20 years ago, um, they started this sort of one-upsmanship between the legislature and, and the correctional administrators. Correctional administrators were faced with a huge overcrowding problem, so they kept increasing the amount of good time uh, the legislature got wind of that and said, okay, we'll show you. We'll start increasing the sentences. And so they, it got to the point where 
um, correctional administrators were giving people 12 days off for every day that they served. Uh, and the le- legislature responded by having the average sentence be 375 years. Um, so, wow. you know, it became a farce. I mean, yeah. it, just, it just became uh, ridiculous. And, uh, and so they finally went to sort of a truth and sentencing uh, program where um, inmates are required to serve 80 percent of their sentence uh, before they're eligible for release. That's great as long as you're handing out realistic sentences. As you said, there, you know, there really isn't any correlation between the amount of time that you're doing and your likelihood of success once you're released. Uh, European sentences, eight years is a long time in a European prison. Uh, in the United States, the average prison sentence is about four and a half years. Um, so, you know, a lot of it just depends on sort of cultural and social differences. Uh, if you look at southern prisons, they tend to hand out longer sentences down there than, than northern prisons. Uh, but there's no correlation between the amount of time you're going to do and, uh, and the, um, the length of your sentence. Stan, I'm glad you brought that question up and, and Bill had a good answer for it. But I think it's really important to note. I mean, we write stories about this from time to time where somebody will get a sentence for 20 years, 40 years or whatever, but they're out fairly quickly, relatively quickly because of this, the good time law. But as a management tool, I mean, if a prisoner doesn't have some incentive to not create havoc in the prison system. Right. It, <clears throat> yeah, that's true. And the, the other thing that people tend to forget is that prosecutors know about good time. It's not like it's some, you know, some surprise to them that good time exists. And so they base their plea bargains on the assumption that people are going to serve half of the time that they're actually sentenced. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's referred to as sort of bark and bite sentencing. You want to give the impression that you're tough on crime by handing somebody a 20-year sentence. But the reality is you know that 10 years is probably a more realistic uh, sentence for the crime that's being committed. And so, you know, it's sort of like when you're selling a car, you don't you don't list in the paper the bare minimum price that you're willing to accept. You you ask for one and a half times what you want, and then you're willing to negotiate down. And if the prisoner is a bad guy in prison, then they're going right. to spend that whole time there. Right. All right. We have a phone call. It's David on the phone. David? Yeah. Thanks. Um, I'm circuit court judge in uh, Vigo County, Terre Haute. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been following the uh, study that the governor and the chief justice have commented upon and you've alluded to in your, in your program. And I'd just like Dr. Head's comments, perhaps, on the, th- the three things that really jumped out at me, and that is that our drug laws are probably the most onerous in the country, number one. Number two, that our theft laws are, are um, unusual, to say the least, that you can be charged with stealing something up to $100,000 in a candy bar and you're facing the same penalties. And three, with respect to... Uh, jail sentence length that you were just talking about, that due to the programming that is available in the DOC, that the people with the longest sentences are generally the only ones who are able to get programming, so that in essence, those people who are sentenced to the most serious crimes are serving on average, I think, around 40% of their sentences, whereas those people who are on short-term sentences serve at least, well, serve 50% of their sentences because they can't get any any programming. And so it's just kind of, I appreciate any comments that uh, Dr. Head may have about that. All right. Thanks, Judge. Yeah, th- there's no question that the drug laws have been a driving force. Um, and, you know, it, it's a problem that society's had to deal with for, for 25 years or 30 years or so is that, you know, we, we really were concerned about the drug problem. And um, the problem with all sentencing laws and, and most of the laws that have been passed is that the people who are passing those laws are are thinking to themselves, what would keep me from committing this crime? What would keep me from doing drugs or stealing a car? And so they come up with sentences that would deter basically old white guys from committing crimes. But the problem is that's not who's committing the crimes uh, as a general rule. And so if you're basing your sentencing scheme on deterrence theory, obviously you need to talk to the people you're trying to deter uh, to see what, what would keep them from committing that crime. So, yeah, drug laws, uh, theft laws, the same thing. They're sort of anachronistic. Uh, in most states, what you find is sort of petty theft and, and grand larceny with, you know, somewhere around $300 or $500 being the distinction. But uh, you're right, in Indiana, 
the theft laws just don't make a whole lot of sense. And um, again, it's probably something that needs to be revisited in terms of coming up with realistic penalties for people that are based not necessarily on a, on a, what our perception of deterrence is, uh, but getting more at you know what what are the root causes of people committing these kinds of crimes. Uh, as far as sentence length, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, because there's not much correlation, we've tried to come up with uh, programs and sort of incentives for people behind bars. But most of the time, they're not able to complete those uh, programs and sentences uh, based on, you know, sort of the uh, disparities of sentences that are, at, that are uh, in the system. So just to follow up on that, I mean, in – if you're in for a long sentence, you could get a couple years knocked off if you get your GED, for instance, right? I mean, right. there are programs like that. Yeah. The, the, the biggest one was a few years back, uh, we passed a law which allowed people to take um, time off for, for a GED and time off for a college degree, uh, which, again, was, was a good uh, sort of carrot and a stick reward to allow people to uh, – to have something um, sort of tangible to uh, to do while they're behind bars, but the number of people behind bars that take advantage of those programs are, are abysmally low. Uh, it's just really hard um, to sort of encourage people to do that when they're faced with 20, 25, 40, 50 years. Uh, knocking two years off their sentence really isn't going to be that much of an incentive. You mentioned the sort of skewed frame of reference between lawmakers and the, the actual prison population. Would it be useful in your mind to try to convene meetings between legislators and inmates? Uh, you know, often you'll see a lawmaker who will go to a foreign country or who will make some public appearance somewhere just to have their face somewhere to increase their political standing. Do we need to do a better job of bringing together the people who are making these prison laws and the people who are actually being subject to them in most cases? Well, there's no question that, um, that there's sort of a disconnect between, as we said earlier, the theory and the practice. Uh, I used to work for the legislature. My first job out of college was uh, working for the Indiana State Senate. And um, yeah, because I was interested in criminal justice, you know, I, I sort of, sort of uh, followed those bills and followed what was going on in the legislature. And I always just sort of asked legislators, have you ever been to the state prison? Have you ever sort of been behind bars uh, just to see what it's like? And, and I'd never found a legislature, a legislator that uh, had actually been to a prison. And, um, and so that creates a problem because some of that is intentional. Uh, some of that, in terms of correctional administrators, is designed to keep people from finding out what's going on. They don't want too much oversight and, and supervision of what they're doing. Uh, the courts really have been the only um, governmental entity that have had much of an impact on correctional change in the last 50 years. Up until the 1960s, the Supreme Court followed what was known as a hands-off doctrine, where they basically said, we don't know anything about running prisons, and we don't want to know anything about running prisons. And so they wouldn't get involved at all in, uh, in, in correctional administration matters. Uh, 1960s, they finally did, and they sort of did it on a case-by-case -case basis and started uh, doing things like um, religion behind bars and access to the media behind bars and, and mail censorship behind bars. So they did it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but in most states today, the only impetus for change in the correctional system is coming from the courts. California, I hate to keep picking on them, but uh, they're currently under federal court order to reduce their prison population by at least 25 percent. Uh, and if they don't, they're facing um, horrific fines. I think it's something like uh, $25,000 a day in fines uh, if they don't reduce their prison population. So I, I think they're the big hammer right now. The legislature, uh, because of um, sort of this uh, fear of, of an electorate that wants, you know, people to be perceived as tough on crime, um, it probably isn't going to, 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 to be the, the change agent, the catalyst that's going to, to create change behind bars. All right. Our phone numbers are 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And the web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Wayne is on the line. Wayne, you've been patient. Thanks for calling. Hi. You, you were talking about a, a deterrence, deterrence of crime. May I suggest a different kind of deterrence, which is cultural deterrence by, by strengthening family structure and child rearing. 
I can remember when if you built a new prison, it would not fill up, and most of our jails were almost empty. And, and the reason for that very low crime rate in those days was because of stable families and strong moral consensus. The, the, the strong families gave us a, a, a moral consensus. It, it, it acculturated children in, in, a, in a moral structure. Might it, might it not be very productive to sponsor a program of strengthening marriage, discouraging divorce, making parents conscious of the fact that, that, that the moral values they impart to their children will not only make those children happier and more successful, but it will also save us the cost of new jails and prisons. Well, there's no question that we've we've had a decline in what what we tend to call social control. Uh, as you said, you know, 40, 50 years ago, uh, people knew who their neighbors were. They knew who their minister was. They knew, you know, uh, uh, who their school teacher, and they were worried that their school teacher might find out that they were involved in some kind of illicit activities. Those kinds of ties have sort of gone by the wayside, and uh, unfortunately, the criminal justice system has been asked to deal with more and more of of what we call behavioral problems rather than traditional sort of uh, violent offenses and, and property offenses and those kinds of things. Indiana's a, or a Bloomington's a perfect example of that. Here in Bloomington, we've got a noise ordinance so the police can can cruise down the street on spring and summer nights and see how much noise there is. And if you've got uh, a noisy party going on, they can write you a ticket for that. Uh, and so um, there's an ordinance in Bloomington that, that prohibits people from riding their bicycle on the sidewalk. Uh, it's never been enforced, but it's on the books. Um, those laws were passed because uh, people had this feeling that uh, society is out of control, that we need to do something about that. Um, interestingly, the, the, the groups that have been the most effective in, in – um, in creating change in correctional settings have been religious organizations. Uh, and, and really, for, for the most part, they're the only ones that have really cared about what's going on behind bars. Um, you see a lot of religious groups, uh, especially the Quakers, uh, being involved in prison ministries and, and doing something about trying to change lives behind bars. But you're, you're right. You're not going to accomplish any kind of change and, 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 and lower the crime rate until people are willing uh, to change their behaviors. If they don't see anything wrong with, you know, if, if all they're calculating are the odds of getting caught, um, then it's really, you know, it's really up to society to change that sort of mindset. I am one of those people who participated in one of those religious prison – we have a prison visitation program in the Bloomington jail. Uh-huh. And uh, – and I found among the inmates that, to whom I ministered that so many of them came from broken families. Their, home, their, their, their fathers were drunk, or they didn't even know who their fathers were. If they had an intact family, I mean, an in, intact families avoid crime. I mean, they, they avoid making criminals. And, and so I think we should... Intact families are the important things. Now, of course, good cultural consensus... Is, is also important. If you have the, the combination in society of good cultural consensus and strong families, your jails will, you won't need so many jails. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always said that one of the sort of paradoxes for me about society is that it's actually harder to own a dog uh, in Indiana than it is to, to get married. And uh, <laughs> it seems like we should have uh, more restrictions, as you said, on, um, on sort of uh, social functions that, um, that are sort of basic to the fabric of society. But until we change uh, the marriage laws, the divorce laws, those kinds of things, then uh, you're, you're really not going to see much strengthening of family ties. Wayne, thanks for the All call. Right, Wayne, I appreciate thanks. it. I, Wayne does bring up an interesting point, which is how do you deal in a prison system with society as it changes because you're dealing with a society in prisons that are sort of within the larger context of society and the larger context is constantly in flux. Something is always different. How do you take a population that has deliberately been moved away from the larger context and integrate it into what's going on outside? Right. Um, and, and interestingly, if you look at 
women's prisons as opposed to men's prisons, one of the things that uh, that women's prison administrators count on is this this bond that develops between the other female offenders. They create their own families behind bars where they've got brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and grandparents. And um, the question, the debate becomes, is that something that they were missing on the outside that they're trying to create here? Or is it something that's sort of fostered within, you know, within a, a correctional setting uh, that's going to disappear once they get on the outside? In men's prisons, it's, it's sort of <laughs> everybody uh, – you look out, look out for your, after your own interests. There's no real cohesion at all uh, among the prison uh, population except – uh, where gangs are concerned. And one of the things that, um, you know, sort of Wayne sort of uh, was talking about is, is this, this social connection that people are lacking. Um, that's what the gangs are providing in a lot of urban settings is, is more of a, a sense of loyalty and more of a sense of connection uh, than people feel with their own families. And that's why you've seen such a, a huge growth in gangs in inner city areas uh, just because for a lot of young people, that's, that's really the only family they have and the only people that they really feel they can count on. I stumbled across a, a program on one of the cable networks that was about a, a scared straight kind of program in one of the prisons. Uh, this one I think was in a women's prison. But I wondered, if there is, has there been research on how successful those programs are where you take young offenders into a, a maximum security prison and, and let the inmates sort of talk to them? Right. There, there actually has been a fair amount of research on that. And, and uh, surprisingly, the research that's been done indicates that um, typically they'll take a, a class uh, of, of offenders or you know, maybe even an entire high school class and take them behind bars and have the inmates scream at them and, um, and basically try and scare them straight, as you said. Uh, most of the research that's been done indicates that those things are an unqualified failure. Um, <laughs> that for whatever reason, again, short-term versus long-term, when people come out of that setting, they are scared to death. I mean, they, they literally come home and say, oh, my God, I'll never go back into that uh, place again. Within a month, they're starting to say, well, that wasn't so bad, and I survived that. Within six months, they're saying, those guys were just stupid. Uh, I'm smart. They're stupid. Uh, I'll get away with it. I won't get caught. And they're back to sort of doing the sort of hedonistic calculus that uh, that they originally had done uh, in the first place. And so uh, most of the studies have been done indicate that uh, even though, again, it looks like intuitively it should be very effective, uh, in reality, it's it's not. It's, it's more of a failure. On the state level, one of the things that I heard in a, a House hearing I covered a, a month or so ago was from a guy in South Carolina who said uh, he's, he's a former prison commissioner there, and he said, you know, we lock up people for just about anything in South Carolina, and you people here in Indiana lock up people that we wouldn't even consider locking up primarily for drug crimes. What do you think needs to be done in terms of reforming the way that Indiana puts away drug offenders or tries to rehabilitate them? Well, you know, again, the whole idea is that we're, we're trying to get at a problem, uh, the roots of which – really aren't that amenable to a correctional setting. I mean, clearly, um, drugs are, are a very um, uh, um, hard – they have a, a real sway on, on individuals, and it's very, very hard to break that addiction. And clearly, locking people up hasn't been very effective in the past in dealing with that. Here in, in Bloomington, we have a drug court, uh, which takes a totally different approach to the problem, uh, gets more to positive reinforcement of the right behavior rather than negative reinforcement of the wrong behavior. So in drug court, um, you you know come in every month, you you do your drug test. If you pass your drug test, you get a coupon for a, you know, a Jiffy Treat ice cream cone, or you get uh, two movie, two uh, movie tickets, something like that. And so it it rewards people for doing the right thing. You got to keep in mind that a lot of people who are involved in these kinds of activities don't know what normal is. And so getting back to sort of Wayne's point, there's a, a whole generation of people that uh, don't really understand what a traditional family or what you know traditional values are because they've never really been exposed to that. Um, and so anytime you're talking about whether it's a school problem or a uh, community problem, those kinds of things, you're going to have very disparate views uh, uh, of what uh, – the sort of patterning behavior should be, and that that creates a problem. And, and we've done some reporting on our station about the fact that the drug 
court, at least here in Monroe County, seems to be effective in terms of decreasing recidivism, getting people back acculturated to society. Right. And, and the problem is that, you know, various states have different kinds of, you know, there's drug courts, there's gun courts, there's family courts. Obviously, uh, the communities are recognizing that different problems have to be dealt with in different ways. You can't have sort of a one-size-fits-all uh, approach to justice, and and that's especially true when we talk about the prisons. Uh, you know, traditionally, prisons were seen as sort of the place where you would send violent offenders, and that's not the case anymore. Um, uh, less than half the people who are behind bars now are there for some kind of violent offense. And so, as your South Carolina administrator said, we're incarcerating a lot of people that 25 or 30 years ago wouldn't have been incarcerated. Uh, regardless of the community corrections programs that are out there, uh, we've just decided uh, as a society that I don't know whether it's enough is enough or we, we don't know what the problem is, so let's just warehouse these people and get them out of our hair. Um, but we're, we're, we're definitely taking on uh, sort of a new class of clientele, and that creates problems not only for society, but it creates problems for the prisons as well because it will get a lot of people in prison that really don't know how they're supposed to act and how they're supposed to perform, and uh, it can create chaos. We have less than two minutes to go, and I just wanted, wanted to address one case that we wrote about last year. Laura Lane wrote a story about a guy who'd been arrested more than 100 times in Monroe County in the last, I don't know, it's been four or five years, maybe a little longer than that. But that that seems like a case of, uh, you know, a, a person that's got some uh, addiction issues and a lot of other things, but yet 100 contacts with the court system is expensive. It's time-consuming. Obviously, he's not getting the kind of help and messages that uh, he needs to get. What can you do about a, 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 a sort of unique case like that? Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell actually did a um, an article on this um, in his, his latest uh, latest book, and he calls it the power curve. Uh, you, you, especially with homeless people, you would think you'd have sort of a normal distribution, uh, but you don't. You have uh, a very small number of people that create uh, the vast majority of the problems you're having in a community. And I think if you target those people and have very intense treatment programs available for them, you're going to have a really effective uh, impact on the crime rate. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been a very uh, quick hour again. <laughs> and thank you for being here, Bill, Dr. William Head of IU's Criminal Justice Department. Uh, Mary Catherine couldn't be with us, but Stan Jastrzewski sat in and, as usual, did his great professional job. Appreciate it, Stan. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to be with you. For uh, Dan Goldblatt, our producer and engineer, John Shelton, who's been here today in Mike Pashkash's stead, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.